Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before I introduce my guest today, I want to welcome the many new people that have subscribed through my website or through Patreon in the past three weeks. It seems like there's a hunger for content that is not simply going along with the tide of identity politics that's currently sweeping the nation like a tsunami. If you haven't subscribed yet but want to, I ask that you do it through my website rather than through Patreon. This Patreon has been known to occasionally cancel people who are deemed problematic, and I want to insulate myself against that possibility as much as I can. To give you a sense of how important contributing is, the podcast is now making enough money per episode to justify hiring an audio engineer to handle the many hours of technical work that go into making a single episode sound good. Of course, if you don't support the podcast financially, that's fine too. You can also support me by subscribing to my YouTube channel. Okay, today's guest is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who probably needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an American astrophysicist, author, and science communicator. Since 1991, he's been the Frederick P. Rose Director of the Hayden Planetarium at the Rose Center for Earth and Space in New York City. The center is part of the American Museum of Natural History, where Tyson founded the Department of Astrophysics in 1997 and has been a research associate in the department since 2003. In the first half of this conversation, we talk about the progress that has been made in reducing racism since Neil was a kid, especially with regard to the prevalence of racial profiling and stereotyping in the mainstream media. In the second half, we talk about police brutality, different ways of parsing the data on police killings of unarmed civilians, and whether an attitude of optimism or pessimism is warranted at this moment. So without further ado, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Sure, happy to be there. So we're speaking on June 4th, which is uh, you know a week and three days after George Floyd was killed uh, at the hands of Derek Chauvin and two other Minneapolis police officers who restrained him uh, on the ground, including on his neck, and uh, ended up killing him on camera uh, in a way that was truly brutal and horrific to watch. And that event has sparked protests for now over a week, uh, peaceful protests in virtually every city in America, as well as many nations around the world. Uh, It has also sparked riots uh, in most American cities. And, you know, this is a historic moment, I think, for the nation coming over two months into the coronavirus lockdown, uh, which is also, you know, one of the huge historic moments of, of, of the past few decades. And you have written an essay called Reflections on the Color of My Skin, which I hope we could use as a jumping off point 
Um, you've, you've been reluctant to weigh in on the issue of, of race for most of your career. And I'm sure you get asked because you happen to be a black physicist, you know, to comment on these issues quite frequently, but you've, you've chosen your spots really sparingly. And I, I really understand the, the basis of that, but you've chosen to weigh in at a deep moment uh, right now. And I, I'm hoping we can use that piece as a launching off point. So in this essay, you start with a story about a physics conference. Uh, would you mind telling that story? Uh, sure. Um, back in the uh, 1990s, uh, I was an active member of a physics society, physics organization. We had annual meetings like any society would where you have collections of experts in whatever is the, the interest base of that community. I mean, you can have conferences of refrigerator salesmen. And so you gather and there's a certain camaraderie because everyone at a conference has strongly overlapping professional interests and you learn from each other about how to do your job better. So that resonance, I think, creates a level of friendship and camaraderie among people who you might not necessarily even know very well, simply because you have common interests. That would be true for any conference, of art, technology, of surfing. It wouldn't matter. So in this particular case, it's a community of physicists. And as is true for most conferences, uh, there's a last dinner banquet where everyone eats together, and uh, usually the night before the last day. And there was wine being served. And at the end of the banquet, there was a, a group of us. I don't remember the exact number, somewhere between 8 and 12. Um, just enough to say, let's, let's find some common room, maybe a, a, you know, a top floor suite or something, where we can all gather and just continue. So we grabbed the bottles, the, the not quite empty bottles of wine from the table. And we went and found a common room somewhere in the hotel just to talk, just to chew the fat. We're all physicists, so um, we get to talking about some geeky things, which is entirely unavoidable when you have the level of math and physics background that we do collectively. And so we start arguing about <laughs> things like, does Superman really need a cape in order to fly? If you stole his cape, would he not be able to fly? And what role would his cape play in it? And if it's just he comes from Krypton, and it's a different star, and it's only the star, and others on Krypton don't have capes, do they? You know, so the whole argument about it. And as only sort of a community of geeks could, could engage. And the topic went on to other, the, the topic would shift, exhausting one topic, going to another. Uh, I remembered we were curious that diet, a can of Diet Pepsi floats in water, whereas a can of regular Pepsi sinks. That's just peculiar because regular Pepsi has sugar that makes it slightly more dense. Diet Pepsi um, is still wrapped in a metal, a metal canister. So whether something floats or sinks is a matter of the average density of the, the object. So if you take the liquid that's in a can of Diet Pepsi and add to it the metal that's surrounding it, it's still kind of a mystery that it floats. Anyway, we discussed that. And we discussed other things. And we, this went on and on into the night. And then at one point, we started talking about momentum transfer in car collision. So 
it turns out, if you never thought about it, that two cars going, let's say, 60 miles an hour, having a head-on collision is the same energy involved doing damage to you as if you went 60 miles an hour into a brick wall. It's not double, okay? But you have to think that through and understand why. So we were doing that and figuring that out. That got us talking about cars. And one of us started saying, I started recounting an occasion when he was stopped by the police driving his car. And we all listened attentively, and turns out he was speeding, but, but the cop sort of searched him and searched the car and searched the trunk, and then he got a speeding ticket. He was driving a sports car, by the way. We didn't have much sympathy for him in that, just because it was, he was speeding, and he was driving a sports car. And so, but, but that got everyone else thinking, and we just started sharing stories about our encounters with the police. And that would occupy us for the rest of the evening. There must have been about 30 stories communicated over the several hours that followed. Each one of us, in turn, I had stories of being stopped by the police. And one time I was stopped in New Jersey, and it was late at night, hardly any cars on the road, and an officer stopped me under an overpass, uh, asked me to get out. This was at night asked me to stand behind my car in front of his bright squad car lights. And so I'm, I remember squinting at the light. And he started asking me questions. Um, where are you coming from? I said, I'm coming from my parents' house. Where are you going? I'm going home. Who's the woman next to you in the car? Uh, who's the woman sitting in the passenger seat? I said, that's my wife. What's in the trunk? I said, just a greasy tire and some other stuff. And this, this line of questioning just... And I didn't know why this was happening. So, oh, well, I stopped you because you change lanes without signaling. Okay. Um, this sounded kind of incredulous. Uh, maybe I did. I don't remember in the preceding minutes before I was stopped. But he would later say, after he said, well, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm an astrophysicist with Princeton University. Now, only at this point did he then start saying, oh, well, the real reason why I stopped you was that your license plates were very shiny and new. I just recently moved to New Jersey and I needed Jersey plates. But were shiny and new and it didn't match your car. So we wanted to make sure that either the car nor the license plates were stolen. Okay, then I moved on. Okay, I put this into the circle. And okay, I wasn't roughed up. I wasn't, there was no violence committed. There was no, but it was just a little odd. I felt. But by the way, I have a dozen other such stories being stopped, being questioned, and not getting a ticket. Not getting a ticket. Collectively, these stories, excuse me, individually, you can listen to each story and say, okay, I can say, all right, you know, I, I can explain that. All right. But collectively, something else was clearly going on. And then we just wondered, is it because we're physicists? <laughs> they know we're physicists and they got something against educated people? And what's the common denominator? The common denominator is I was attending the National Society of Black Physicists. That's the Society of Physicists that I had joined for that week. And the only common denominator among us was this color of our skin. Some of our cars were old, others were New, some were sports cars, some were kind of old, beat-up cars, like my car was 17-year-old Ford. 
Okay. Who would ever steal a 17-year-old Ford? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Um, he's worried about stolen cars. I mean, what's... So I open my commentary with a recounting of this evening, of that evening, just to bring people in to the world of a black person. That was just an opening sort of salvo. This is what goes on all the time. If not that incident, another kind of incident. And am I being petty? Am I being oversensitive? Am I being, am I, does this happen to everyone? I suppose it could, and they just don't tell me. Uh, I don't know that I've ever been in a circle of white people, unless they themselves were truants in some way. I don't know if I've ever been in a circle of law-abiding white people where they all took turns telling police stories. I've never, so maybe they do have the stories and they just don't speak of them. That, that's possible. But this was a way for me to bring the reader into my reflections. The title of the piece is Reflections on the Color of My Skin. Reflections on what happened in my life simply growing up in America. And in this time of, of unrest, triggered by the, the police brutality leading to the death of George Floyd, uh, I felt, you know, I can't any longer just keep all these stories to myself. Somebody has to know this. I'd be irresponsible if I didn't put this out there in some way or another. Now, that story with the physics conference actually does appear in my memoir as one part of one chapter of a much larger discussion of my lifetime growing up. That, by the way, that chapter was called Dark Matters. <laughs> okay. um, That's good. <laughs> so, uh, but my point is, there, it, there came a time, and it was this week, where I said, people need to know what I have experienced in my life. And so in that sense, I sort of broke the fourth wall and said, this is what has shaped who and what I am today. Yeah. Um, so I, ha I think growing up later than, than you did, I have fewer of those stories, but I, I do have them. Where did you grow up? Also growing up where I did. Uh, I grew up in a very nice, diverse, progressive town, a suburban town in New Jersey. What town was that? Montclair and West Orange. Oh, yeah, Montclair. You can't get more progressive than Montclair. Yeah, right. I can also say that it was the 1990s when I began to notice a significant drop in the daily sort of aggressions some macro, some medium, some micro aggressions. And one of my barometers for this is, um, is what fraction of taxis will drive by me and not pick me up if I want to go north in the direction of Harlem mm -hmm. in Manhattan. So in, this, is a, this is a fascinating measure. Of course, in any given incident, you can say, oh, they probably just didn't see me or they just weren't looking. So you could say that, of course, any given incident. But I, I, have, I have statistics over all of these years. In the 1980s, uh, that rate was about a third 
about a third of all taxis would just drive by and pretend to not notice. Of course, human peripheral vision is huge. We don't think of it because you're always focusing on something in front of you. But peripheral vision, you can see more than 180 degrees left and right of you, okay? And so, and a taxi driver whose livelihood depends on noticing people who need a cab to miss me, and I'm not small on the street. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a relatively large person, not crazy large, but big enough so that I'm not hidden behind a, a, a van or a car. Um, so uh, in the 1980s, it was about a third and occasionally a half. By the way, that number was a little uh, lower. There were more of them would pick me up if I was headed south in Manhattan. Okay. So, so these trend lines are quite... For, for people who don't understand the, the context of New York City, if you're headed south, that's a signal to the cab driver that perhaps you're wealthier and more affluent versus if you're headed to, towards Har- Harlem or, or the Bronx where you grew up, where you grew up if I'm correct. Yeah, correct. I grew up yeah. in the Bronx. Yeah. So um, come the 90s, those numbers dropped. Mm-hmm. Come the mid-90s, it was one in five taxis would not pick me up. By the late 90s, it was one in 10. By the 2000s, it was one in 30. So uh, in my commentary, I didn't give all the bits of evidence for why I think things are better today than they were yesterday, speaking metaphoric time there. Um, But for you to be born in 1996, that means you're really coming of age in the 2000s. And consider also after 2001, September, the nation's tribalism was no longer black, white. It was America, Islam, right? So there were other redirections of people's anger and ire, uh, politically and culturally over that time. So I would not expect you to have the depth of stories that I'm drawing from that come from the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, and into the 1990s. Yep. But if there's any issue about whether you can believe what I tell you, or whether it's, I'm just all delusional or whether I am, it's just anecdotal, I can share with you the trend line of it improving over those years. Mm. And we got to a point in the 2010s where I'm, I'm noticed enough. I mean, I'm, I'm identifiable enough so that now there's a celebrity factor. Mm. So I'd have to wear glasses and a hat to reconstruct an authentic experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, uh, times are better. So when I say one to five, which are the numbers I gave in, the, in my commentary, one to five, acts of offense per week, um, uh, that number spans 40 years. I mean, no, 50 years, more than 50. I'm, a, I'm 62 right now. This year I'll be 62. So uh, I'm going back to when I had first an awareness of people's conduct, and that would have been when I was eight, eight or nine. So uh, let's go 55 years back. So I see trend lines, and the, the trend lines are good. I'm happy to report, even though in the face of the police violence we see now, it doesn't feel that way. So, um, and let me say that differently. There's great progress in other metrics, but it's not clear whether we've made great progress in police stopping 
Because what were those what were those car stories drawn from? It was a kind of an automotive stop and frisk is really what that was. Oh, uh, there's a black person. Let me stop him. Probably up to no good. And this is a room full of PhDs. So, um, so yeah, I, I would not have expected that at all. Yeah. So what, what you're highlighting, and yeah, I, I totally agree with you about the the progress that's been made. I actually, I had a a really funny interaction with a cab driver a few months ago who was an immigrant from from Hungary who has been driving a cab in New York since 1980. And he told me that. And I said, I asked him, what's the biggest thing that's changed? And without skipping a beat, he said, I picked you up. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we both, I, I just, I couldn't help but laugh because it was, it was just the, he had this huge smile on his face and he seemed really warm hearted and like he meant it not in a offensive way. It was, it was a, Right, just a matter of fact way. Movie. Just as a matter of fact way, yeah. You even have to applaud the honesty. Exactly. That, that is. Um, I can tell you that, so he, he picks you up. Um, so he would have been in the statistics of everything I was describing. He would have maybe picked up only half the black people hailing a cab, and then uh, maybe two-thirds, and then three-quarters, and then maybe now 100%. I have a hypothesis of what has contributed to that change. It's not a researched answer, but it's just sort of my sense of the world. And that is the more occasions people have to see black people doing ordinary things, being, quote, ordinary citizens, then the more evidence you have against what might otherwise be a bias that you want to invoke. So um, when I was in my teens, early teens, there were no black people on television, except as athletes or as entertainers. And there just were not. Uh, no one was interviewed for their expertise unless they had expertise about being black in some way. They were a preacher in an inner city in the ghetto of the time. And we need to know what your people think. You know? mm -hmm. No one was talking to black people who had any kind of expertise at all. So if you, had, if you were a casual observer of culture through media, you would think black people had no participation in anything at all. Not only that, I grew up at a time where, this is an obscure example, but it's an often forgotten example. In the 1960s, there were no black performers in mainstream Broadway plays. You can say, well, they're scripted for white people. Well, you can say that in the day, but really they're just scripted for good actors and singers and dancers and performers. So what happened? Famous musicals were created with, quote, all black casts. So you, you, you tapped the deep repository of talented black people, singers, dancers, actors, um, and you created familiar plays, musicals, with all black people. One of them was Hello, Dolly. That had Pearl Bailey as Dolly. Everybody was black. And they throw in sort of uh, ethnic cultural um, references and jokes to pepper the otherwise sort of mainstream dialogues. Uh, so as a family, we went to all of the all-black musicals that had mm. come along. And you say, well, and I remember people coming up to me and saying, why do you have all-black? What's the point of that? And these are people who didn't understand why these things, why is there a Miss Black America? Why was there a, a, a black anything at the time? Why was there a black baseball league? 
going back now two decades before this, because we weren't admitted into the rest of it, even when you had talent. So that's why it happened. And then what happens is the rest of the world sees this talent. They value the talent. They start incorporating them into the mainstream cultural product. Then it obviates the need to do things that are all black. So no, there are no all black musicals anymore. So this is an arc of progress, an odd sort of arc, but nonetheless an arc. Not only that, I remember the 70s when you started seeing black people, not the 60s, but the 1970s, where black people in larger numbers were showing up as characters on sitcoms and in movies and shows. However, when that first happens, you're on there because you have to be black in some way. You got to talk black. You got to act black. You are the black person in the script. You're not just another actor in the script. You have to be the black person. You got to give some saucy comment where there's got to be some thing that everyone can laugh at because you have a black attitude as opposed to a mainstream attitude. I, I try to track this because I'm fascinated by how society arcs in its fits and starts through progressive thinking and conduct. Have you seen the show The Good Place? Yes, I have. Yes. So I, I love this show and I, I got to the end of it. And when I got to the end, I realized that the smart character in the show was a black guy. The dumb character in the show was an Asian guy. And, you know, more interesting than both of those was the fact that I didn't notice that they were going counter stereotype. That's it just, that is yet another measure of progress. Right. Correct. Right. And I, and, I, and I look for key moments, turning points for how and when that happens. Uh, I have a comic from The New Yorker that shows a boardroom, okay? And there's a black person in the boardroom. And the, the caption has nothing to do with that person being black. The idea that you can now have a comic with a black person in a boardroom, corporate boardroom, and that's not the punchline... It's like, whoa, I wonder if that was the very first time that was done. So, uh, so I watch for that. And I'm intrigued. My father was active in the civil rights movement. So in spite of me being an astrophysicist, I nonetheless have what I think are deep sensitivities to the capacity of society to exploit people. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about what's happening right now. Uh, in, in a bit more detail. But before I do that, I want to give you a little bit of backstory on who I am and how my views have evolved on this issue issue over time. Um, so I, I grew up, uh, you know, in a very diverse town, uh, as I said, and I grew up being the type of kid that just wanted to be a person full stop. I had a lot of interests and I, I didn't think about race too much. I remember one time when I was 11 or 12, some kids had the idea to play a black versus white soccer game. Me and one other black girl were like, why are we doing this? This is really stupid. We don't want to do this. And I I remember that being my kind of base instinct on race, that it goes no deeper than the color of the skin. And the first person to make it important is is the one making the, the moral and logical error. And then around 2012 is when Trayvon Martin was killed. And I was one year younger than Trayvon when, when he was killed. 
And like many people, I instinctively uh, felt solidarity with him. I felt that I could, he could have been me. And, uh, you know, it was around the same time that I began encountering a lot of ideas like white privilege and systemic racism and whole, whole litany of ideas that I had never encountered before. And, you know, in 2014, when Michael Brown and Eric Garner were killed, um, again, I felt that, you know, this was obviously not, these were obviously not just tragedies, but were racist tragedies. And in 2015, when that, when that list grew to include, uh, you know, Sandra Bland and Freddie Gray and Tamir Rice and others, I began wearing a shirt with, with all of their names on it and, you know, sharing the Black Lives Matter hashtag. And, you know, slowly but surely, I've come to think differently about these issues than I did then. And broadly, the, the reason for that is because I have seen, you know, video after video, uh, even just from a single year, of white people getting killed in the same way. And I, I wasn't aware, you know, when I was wearing these t-shirts that the video, that the problem with the police ran so deep that there are, you know, dozens of white people a year that get killed unarmed, you know, reaching for the alleged gun that they end up not having. And that, you know, seeing that evidence, ha you know, has slowly shaken me towards the position that, you know, uh, a position of kind of a mixed opinion on Black Lives Matter, where I agree the police are much quicker to rough up a suspect if he's black. Um, I, I agree that racism is, is completely real. I agree that, you know, short of shooting someone in the back, there's almost nothing a cop can do that reliably gets him or her punished. Um, I agree that many people don't realize how frustrating it is to be falsely stereotyped. It is a, it's a really crazy making experience, but the more I've looked, the, the harder it is for me to believe that the killings, the, the phenomenon of unarmed Americans being shot dead should be framed in racial terms. And so that leaves me with a very mixed feeling on, on what's happening at the moment. So I wonder what your, what is your reaction? To, to that well um what you're referencing is the statistic which i don't have good reason to um, doubt that the likelihood of being killed in police custody or rather killed by likelihood of being an unarmed person killed by the police or dying in police custody is about the same regardless of your ethnic group. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting piece of data. What it says is that encounters with the police are dangerous. Rather, carry a death risk. Okay? And so you want to minimize your encounters with the police so that... Um, the total number of people who die drops. Okay. So now 
uh, if you have a police department that stops and frisks black drivers, then the numbers of encounters with police are higher. Mm-hmm. Informed by whatever was the suspicions and attitudes, biases of the police officers. So I just want to keep the number of encounters with police to a minimum. Mm-hmm. I spent a couple of paragraphs, maybe one big paragraph in my commentary, retelling the lessons I was getting from my parents in the 1960s. We grew up in New York City. It was a turbulent time. Crime rates were high. And they wanted to make sure that their three black children wouldn't end up dead in the street, shot by police. So they, I, I went through basically police training, right? <laughs> police avoidance training or police conduct training. Police officer stops you, you, you stop. You, you say polite things. You say, good afternoon, officer. How can I help you? Make sure they always see your hands. No sudden movements. Don't put your hands in your pockets. Don't reach for anything. And if you're going to move, tell them what you're about to do. Now, none of us drove a car, but there'd be car instructions later when I would um, learn how to drive. Make sure the officer can always see your hands. Keep them up on the steering wheel. If you're about to reach for your license, tell them you're about to reach for your license and tell them where your license is so that when you reach there, they're not spooked. Okay. So, um, that's an attempt to keep the numbers down. That's really what that is. And so, to keep the total number of encounters a black person would have with the police down to as low as possible. So that when the requisite number of people die in the the statistically repeated number of people die in their custody, um, that the total number becomes low, even if the percents are the same. Mm. That was the crux of my piece on reflections on the color of my skin. It was, yeah, I'm a scientist. I know I see data and I know data and I understand it. And, um, and it's hard to stay dispassionate mm. in the discussion of statistics when you have such graphic video running around the countryside, okay? Or rather, the capacity to obtain graphic video of violent actions is, is knows no limits, right? So, so my response to you would be that, yeah, if you're admitting there is racism and there is bias, if you're admitting all of that, um, and we recognize that you're not more likely to die because of your skin color. Once the police have you in their custody, you're not more likely to die after you're in their custody. If you want to say they're not stopping black people more often than white people, I haven't seen the data on that. Yeah. So we're just trying to keep the numbers down. And by the way, this is a subtle mathematical point. Well, it's not subtle if you're a mathematician, but if, you're, if, if you don't think mathematically, the difference between the same num- fraction of people dying, no matter the demographic, and whether or not the cops are racist for their policing practices, um, you would think that one negates the other. But they're two different mathematical data points. Mm-hmm. Right. And when we see a, a, a Floyd, a George Floyd, getting killed 
you're seeing police brutality against a black person. You're not seeing, here's yet another black person in the custody of police. Mm. Yeah. That's the real number that should be seen here. Right. This is even if you correct for crime rates and all of this, mm-hmm. you know, if, if black people commit more crimes or um, if uh, of what of certain varieties, depending on income and neighborhood and city and, <laughs> and, and all the rest of this. So that's my reaction to your latter day revelations about mm-hmm. the data. So I, I want to talk about where this is all headed for us as a nation, because I have to say I am very pessimistic about uh, the possibility of, you know, recurring riots in American cities. And, you know, I think re- really nobody likes to see riots except, you know, the rioters themselves and you know, a fringe on the internet that will sort of fully make excuses for them. But the vast majority of people, those who support Black Lives Matter, those who are against it, really don't want to see riots. And I've been to a few of the BLM protests in New York, and they stress nonviolence uh, very, very clearly. And I'm, I'm worried, though, that I'm worried about a few things. One is that it's hard for me to see realistically how we get from the number of unarmed Americans of all races getting killed, say in 2019. According to the Washington Post database last year, there were 41 unarmed Americans killed by the police in total. Okay, I, I've seen other data that puts that over 100 for just yeah. One. So, so yeah, I looked at I, I looked at. So I, I was, I saw, okay, I read whatever the number it's, it's yeah. relative to other ways people die. It's a relatively small number. So yes, on. yes. Uh, that, that, that's, that's what matters. I presume and where we're headed here. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. What, what matters is that it's, it's lower than you might think, depending on what your prior beliefs are. And we can talk about how many are black, how many are white. But to me, it, it feels when, when I read all of these news stories and I've spent a lot of time reading the news stories, the, the ones that never go national about these altercations. And, you know, a lot of them involve people having a gun that looks like a real gun, but is in fact a toy gun. Um, a lot of them involve the cops thinking that you're reaching for a gun and there's actually nothing in your pocket. A lot of them involve mental illness. And, you know, the, the, the point I'm making here is that as we talked about in the beginning, I think there's been a lot of progress made on this issue, not enough. But it seems like the the more progress you make, the harder it gets to make progress on an issue like this. Because, you know, we're, we're in a, we're in a, we have a crazy gun culture in America, which means that unlike in many countries, when the cops do pull over a suspect, they have a more rational fear uh, than in other places that the suspect might be armed. And so it seems to me if there are something like, you know, tens of millions of civilian cop interactions every year and point zero 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 one of them, you know, go bad and someone is there to film it, which hasn't been the case throughout most of history, then the, the conditions for a riot are, are going to be there 
unless we somehow find a way to get a get get the number down to zero year after year. And the more I think about how we would do this, the more I despair for the possibility that can't be done. So here's how I would respond to that. Um, that's pretty pessimistic. <laughs> the country ultimately got rid of slavery, all right? Um, and talk about sort of violations of human dignity. Um, that was a pretty big one. They would journey come lately in that one relative to Europe, but nonetheless, it did happen. The way I look at it is, suppose there was a black police officer who had his knee on the neck of a white person. Suppose it wasn't even a police officer. Suppose it was a black person who killed a white person. And if this was the South, you know, at any time, at most of the decades of the 20th century, up through the 1960s, um, there would probably be mobs of white people trying to find the black person to lynch him. That, that would be the form of justice exacted on that incident. So you say, okay, that's messed up. That's not due process. That's whatever. And so you can analyze it in the moment for what should have happened. Okay. So now we look at this. It's a white cop, knee on the neck of a black person, and the black person dies. How you feel about that matters in a, in a free country. Okay. So you can't, you can't, no, I'm, saying, I'm speaking this as a scientist, but as a person who lives in the real world. Okay. There's the philosophical world, not to put needless distance between us, but there's what is philosophically true, logically true, and then there is what's actually happening. Okay. So the fact that that happened at all is a problem. That should happen zero times, mm -hmm. right? No, it's not someone pulling out a toy gun mm -hmm. on video. That's not what he's handcuffed, okay? Um, um, Rodney King was tased and he's just trying to stand up and they keep hitting him. Okay. I left out a piece where I recounted that, where they're instructing each other to hit him at his joints, on his kneecap, at his ankle, on his elbow, on his head. He ended up with a fractured skull. That should never happen ever. So I don't care what the percent is. That should never happen. That is not a cop being scared. That, that, is, that is deep. That is, that, I don't even know what that is. So you can say it's 0.0002% and we shouldn't worry about it. The fact that anyone behaves that way at all and they're endowed with the power of weapons given to them by the mayor of their town, who is generally the, the commander-in-chief of the, of the police force? What is that? That matters. Sometimes small things are big things, and they don't lend themselves to pure statistical analysis. There's certain things that should simply never happen. And you can't say, oh, it happened because there are a few crazy police officers. There should not be any crazy police officers. If there was a crazy heart surgeon, how long would that person stay on the job? If there was a crazy, I mean, just think about this. If there was a crazy pharmacist who would occasionally mix up medicines on purpose, how long would that person stay? How would that person even get to have that job? So this is a, 
um, I, I, in this case, I can't look at how small the numbers are given how dangerous it is for the confidence we have in law enforcement, yeah. how dangerous the capacity for that to erode the confidence that we all need to have to have to maintain a, a law abiding society. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to be clear, I don't, I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression. I think what happened to George Floyd and uh, Tony Timpa was a very similar case um, three, uh, four years ago. You know, the, the like putting your knee on someone's back and listening as they slowly suffocate to death. I think that we can get rid of that probably entirely. Yeah, I think, and I think it's the, possible. This the, the, this is the optimism that I carry, uh, maybe a little more of than you have in this moment, um, that I, police historically, I don't know that psychological um, dimensions of who and what a police officer is was ever really a big, <laughs> historically, a big part of what the selection process of that job was. And uh, is, can you shoot straight? You know, can you arrest the bad guy? You're good. You know, why else would you even have the tradition of we need to, uh, we need some, uh, what's it in the, you get the, you deputize people who have guns to then join you in your law enforcement. And that's just, yeah, just somebody, some farmer who's got a gun. Hey, I need some, you know, <laughs> you're marshal and you, you deputize some people. Um, that's, well, are they trained? Are they do they know what they're doing? Do they understand the psychology of who it is they're tracking? So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a watershed moment in the reform of who it is we entrust our safety in our society. Uh, do, you, do you have an opinion on the, forms that, the reforms that are being advocated, like ending qualified immunity and, uh, you know, not giving police military-grade weapons, independent review boards and such? I regret that I don't have full awareness of everything in progress right now, mm -hmm. but I can tell you that military grade weaponry has no place in with one American wielding it against another. The, um, this is the level of science and technology that has been invested in war machines designed to destroy to kill en masse, um, this is not what should be happening on your own soil, bringing your own weapons to bear on your own citizens. Um, you could argue those weapons shouldn't be brought to bear on any citizens, given how horrific they are. But if you look through the history of warfare, there are times where that has been fully justified by both parties and all levels of the political spectrum, the Second World War among them. So uh, that one, I, to me, the answer to that is pretty clear. And what does it mean to have tanks roll down your streets when protesters have rocks? Like, what does that mean? You know, you can't, is that the bet? Really? Really? What does it mean? And, and in New York City, you don't even have rocks because there are no rocks in the city. <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing to pick up and throw, right? Um, uh, what is... What does it mean for you to have, oh, by the way, the riots that you described were from what I saw, maybe you saw other footage, it was looters 
looting and setting fire. This I would count as mild compared with full-scale riots that first happened in Los Angeles after the Rodney King verdict and riots in 1966 through 69, where it wasn't just protesters marching where a fringe element turned violent. It was the entire, um, the entire expression of energy was one of hopeless anger. So yeah, I don't have all the rest of the review boards, sure, but I think in the end, it's really the psychology of the police officer mm. that needs to be more closely assessed. And I also commented that you know the Minnesota Academy is a four-month program, the police academy, and the New York Police Department has a six-month program to become an officer. And there's a culinary academy where it takes eight months to become pastry chef. <laughs> so... Yeah, that was a good point. Yeah, I mean, what... The, the other thing about the NYPD that I think m- might be really important is that, so far as I know, they've kept the the very best data of any police department in the country on shootings going back to 1971. And so they've been... It's been possible to hold them accountable in a way that hasn't been possible. Like We, we didn't even know who was getting killed by the cops in a nationwide way until 2015. And even still, we actually don't have a federal official database. So I think accountability is a huge issue. If you can, you know, point to this is how many people you're killing, it becomes much, much, much more pressing on police departments to, to make reforms. Uh, first, I see it different. Yes, I agree with that. But I see it, I think, even more deeply. That I'm less interested in having accountability boards and prosecuting bad cops. I'm less interested in that than I am preventing bad cops from bad, such people from ever having become cops in the first place. These review boards are band-aids to a problem that would then never go away, possibly. Whereas if they never have access to that level of power over the citizenry, because they have bias, because they're trigger happy, because they have tattoos that say, kill them all, let God sort them out, because they have swastik, whatever is their issue. It's a free country, fine they have their free expression of opinion measured in whatever way they choose. But if you're now appointed to keep the peace in a diverse culture, and we find out that you hate gays, we find out that you, you're a fan of the uh, neo-Nazis, if we, this, this, you're not the person who should have that job. Think about it. If none of those people were ever there, you wouldn't need the review boards. You wouldn't need any, you would, it wouldn't even be necessary. That's what I'm after. And I don't think that's impossible to achieve because I keep looking up (laughs) all the time. By the way, I did want to make it clear that you look at the lists of police killings city by city Mm. and New York city is the lowest out of Mm -hmm. 60. Yeah. Um, And than you would predict based on population. You can say it's low for a city with millions of people. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, how about, Cities that are just a million or half a million, it's lower than them. How about mm-hmm. cities down to a quarter million? It's mm-hmm. lower than them. So I, I wanted to make sure in my article that some credit went to my hometown for turning it into what I remembered it to be to what it currently is. And that's yeah. why there's one sentence in there. So maybe we should see what New York City, would, in spite of ugly behavior that we see on the internet, 
between police and protesters in every city, including my own city. Spite of that, we need to look at what New York City was doing well and maybe do more of that rather than look to see what people are doing bad to try to do less of it. I mean, not rather than, but you do both, right? You see what works and do more of that. That there's not enough of that kind of thinking going on out there. Yeah. Okay. Before I let you go, I, I think I, I agree with most of what you said. I think I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit less optimistic about the prospect of making sure that no either incompetent or evil people become cops to begin with. I feel like there will always be some kind of, no matter how hard we try, there's going to be a, a small number that of, of quote unquote bad apples that get through. Yeah. But, uh, but a lot of those bad apples are not called out by their fellow officers. That's true. If the officers are at a bar one night and they hear one of them say, look at these niggas, I can't stand them. Or they're with them, you know, or these fags or these, if you hear that and they're one of your fellow officers and you do nothing about it, then you're, you're culpable, right? Is that the right word? Culpable? You're, yeah, you're, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, um, so, so you, if someone is weird, you know it. If you spend time, if, if they're your person that you spend all this time in the squad car with on stakeouts or whatever, you know who that person is. Their behavior is not some kind of surprise to you. So no, I'm, I'm, it's, we need, we, it's, we need a cultural shift in attitudes towards how we think about who and what the police are to us and what we are to the police. Let me give you one, one example to, to show you where I'm coming from. Uh, there's a video from 2015 of a cop responding to a domestic abuse allegation. And it happens to be a black cop. It's not relevant to the story. Um, responding to a domestic abuse allegation. And he comes up and he gets startled by a dog. And he shoots twice. And one of the shots accidentally hits the woman that called, it, called in the abuse allegation. And then after, after the body cam, he says, he, he's just like completely despairing, lamenting. And he says, I'm, I'm not going to drop the F-bomb, but he says, I'm effing going to prison. And my, my impression as someone who, you know, I've never, I don't have police in my family. I don't have so much firsthand experience with the police is that it's not, you know, it's not a mat. If, if we weed out every bad apple, then the good apples will sometimes make massive screw ups. And what I'm worried about is, you know, if we institute all the reforms that, that I support and that many, many support, it, it will be hard to go five or 10 years without a riot because, you know, the, the, the screw ups will be magnified and will seem to represent the norm. So that's an important psychological issue. What you're mm -hmm. saying is the commonality of it dilutes the impact that any one incident would have on people's emotions. And the rarer they become, the more significant they will land on people's reaction functions. Is that a, did I summarize what you just that's said? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes, that's an interesting fact. I, I don't know how, how that would play out. If at some point you do get to say there was one mass shooting this year when in previous years there were 20, that's good. That, that's a good sentence to utter. Not to 
diminish the tragedy of the one incident. Um, the fact that we went 10 years, was it between 2002 and 2012, where no one died, I think that's the interval, you can check me on that, where no one died in a domestic uh, airplane crash. Mm. Every year I grew up, there's at least one plane crash a year. Hundreds of people would die, 100 people would die every year in a plane accident. And that we just live with that. And even at that rate, planes were hugely safe compared with many other forms of transportation. Now it's so rare that if a plane crashes, it is major headlines scattered everywhere. And then it gets investigated. But you know what happens? You find out. The reason why this happened is because this thing happened where there was a lithium battery in the truck we didn't know about. Now we know, and now that's not going to happen again. So then the public is given confidence that we care about even that one case and are taking precautions so that that will never happen again. And you know something? The FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, investigates every single plane crash and finds out exactly why the plane crashed. Because you, there's enough going on. You can see the wires, the this, the, the, trans, the communication. And that's why there's a black box. They know everything. And so over the years... Things like wind shear, that used to drop airplanes out of the sky. But now they're wind shear metrics, wind shear, caution, and the computer adjusts and the plane avoids it. All of this goes on. If I knew that when disaster happened, there are responsible people making sure it will never happen again. This, is why, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm pushing independent review boards, Neil, actually, because you know, the air, when an airplane crash happens, the airline doesn't investigate itself because we right. wouldn't trust, we, we wouldn't trust their investigation. But the status quo is that a lot of police departments, a lot of police chiefs are deciding whether to discipline their own officers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So, so that would help. So thanks for yeah. bringing that up. Uh, again, that, um, so the, the review boards, however, are what you should do about the officer rather than how to avoid that in the future, I would bet. In, as as initially conceived it's right. not so much an analysis of the situation so that best practice can be modified and shared with all the cities across the mm -hmm. country so that for me is the role of the faa in a plane crash and the, maybe there ought to be that could have been one of my other bullets that i no pun intended my outline points in my um notes about uh, analyzing every single bad incident, unpack it, explore how A went to B, went to C, went to B, to D, went to someone dying. And then you revamp so that that doesn't happen again. That's got, and, and uh, again, what matters is your confidence that people care, mm -hmm. that they're trying to not have it happen again. And we haven't seen that. Just haven't. So I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, thank you so much. Do you have any final parting words of hope? Because I don't want to leave my audience on a <laughs> on such a despondent note. Um, great changes in society, uh, particularly progressive changes, are never just handed to people. Oddly, you have to fight for it. I think that's one of the great shortcomings of modern civilization, that to do the right thing requires bloodshed. Um, and so the fact 
that one too many people died in the hands of the police this past month um, has led to this level of protest. Maybe people will, people, us, culture, society, will wake up. They woke up in 1968, I can tell you that. They, a little bit, there was a lot of, some waking up in the early 60s as well. They woke up when they saw Emmett Tibbs, was that his name, the full name? Emmett Till. Uh, Emmett Till. They woke up when they saw Emmett Till in the casket. Open casket after he'd been fished out of the bayou. Okay? There's, there was, there were changes. that You can say it was just one death and it's just one. There's, you need, um, and it's unfortunate that this doesn't happen peacefully around a circular table. It happens when those in charge realize how seriously people care about outcomes. So, yeah, I, I don't want to see the rioting and looting continue. We need, the protest will continue, I think, until somebody speaks in a way that gives people confidence that change is imminent. And I think it will happen. I just don't know when. It'd be nice to have a president who could do that at a time like now. But. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, not his, it's not his portfolio, really. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, thank strong, you. Strongest point. No. <laughs> Settling differences. No. I haven't seen that in his, in his catalog of speeches. Um, so, well, yeah, maybe we need, um, maybe the president shouldn't be that singular in mm. the influence of our attitudes. That's another, mm. there are other elected representatives out there who are not without power of influence. Governors mm. have a big role. Mayors, too. Yeah. So. Obama made this point in his in his statement, which I completely agree with that tend to focus too much on on federal when a lot of the relevant policies are local governor county d a et cetera yeah exactly but uh okay Neil, thank you so much dude i don't mind doing this again i, I yeah um, there, there's a topic uh, I, I know you've thought deeply about um, education and yeah um, and you may know i'm a product of the New York City public schools. As is my mother. My my mom went to Stuyvesant. Oh, she did. Uh, okay. And she was also from the Bronx. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And um, one year older than you. One year younger. She would have been. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, um, I'd be happy to to get back in conversation with you. Yeah, that would be amazing. All right. All right. Thank.